Um, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, and I sure hope that you have them here with you this morning, you will be greatly helped if you have it open in front of you. And if as I'm reading it and preaching, teaching on it, you'll, you'll be helped if you have it that you can, you can look to um, throughout the message. Now, we are in this morning Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look specifically at verses uh, 15 to 26, and I'm going to actually read from 12 to 26. Now, as we read this, I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, this is a little bit of a graphic text. There's some graphic material in here, and that's that's okay, but here's the deal. We're going to read it anyways, and the re reason why we're going to read it anyways is because um, we believe that as we uh, engage the whole church to form whole disciples um, for the good of all people, we need the whole Bible to do just that, and so we're going to read it this morning, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us, all right? So I'm going to read from verse 12 to verse 26, chapter 1 of Acts. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his office. So one of the men who, had, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up uh, from us, uh, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord... Who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven disciples. Let's pray. Father God, we believe that this is your holy, inspired word. Lord, we believe that it is eternal and that it is true, and we ask that you would take this word, your word, Lord, and would you write it on our hearts as your people. Would you use it this very, this very day, Lord, to form us as your people. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of my heroes of the faith is a woman by the name of Maria Fearing. Maria Fearing was a woman who was born in 1838 in the deep south in slavery. 
Um, odds were stacked against her from the very beginning. She lived for some, you know, over 30 years in slavery in, in 1865 when um, a slavery was done away with, when slavery was done away with, she set her mind to learning how to read. She went and got an education for herself. After about three years, Maria Fearing had an education, and then for some, uh, I guess, 20 plus years, she spent time teaching others how to do the same thing. She, she was a woman who had a heart for God, and she had a heart for others. And so she wanted to use her gifts to improve the lives of those around her. Well, at the age of 56, Maria Fearing, involved in her church, felt a sense, a calling on her life to proclaim the gospel in a different land. And there was someone in her church who was going to the Congo to be a missionary, and she saw the opportunity, and she wanted every part of it. She wanted to go along with the trip. Here's the deal, though. The church that was going to send this man looked at her and thought, there's no way you can go to Africa. There's no way that you can go to Congo to be a missionary. Are you kidding me? This is the early 1900s. You are a woman. You are poor. You're a minority. There's no way you can be used by God. So we're not going to send you. Well, that didn't stop Maria Fearing. What she did, what this woman did, is she took what little she had, her home, all of her possessions, all of her belongings, and she sold them away. She took all the money that she made from that selling her possessions, and she got a ticket on a boat and went to Africa, where she would spend the next 20 years proclaiming the message of Jesus. She would spend the next 20 years proclaiming Jesus, teaching little children. She started a school specifically for girls. She used her gifts to extend God's kingdom in this world. And here's the deal. This is why I love Maria Fearing. Nobody could stop her. There, there's no reason why she should have been doing this. Culturally in the day, as a, as a woman, 56, poor, African-American, the odds were stacked against her. But you could not stop Maria Fearing. And she left a legacy to prove as much. In fact, we're told that she actually outlasted many of the missionaries who did sort of fit the profile in that area. She was loved by the village that she served. She was unstoppable. Now, here's the deal. As we look at the text this morning, we have to ask ourselves a question. This is an unusual text. In fact, if you were to read through some books or maybe follow some other folks who preach through the book of Acts, you may not see this one in the books. You may not see this one preached. So the question that we should ask ourselves is, why is this text here? This, the text is sandwiched between two extraordinary texts. If we consider the beginning of Acts and sort of the launching of this great adventure, the mission of the church, and then in chapter 2, the, the fall of the Holy Spirit at, the, at Pentecost, these are two exceptional, extraordinary texts. And so oftentimes, this one gets forgotten, gets missed. Why is this text here? Well, this is why I believe it's in the Bible, and this is why I believe God wants us proclaiming it this morning. It's because this morning, we will see that God's purposes to extend his kingdom cannot be stopped. We can take heart, we can be strengthened, we can be comforted this morning because the truth is, if we serve the one true living God, we serve a God who is unstoppable. As we read through the book of Acts, we will see God's people face one extraordinary challenge after another. 
one problem after another. But God and his purposes cannot be stopped. I think that's the message we need to hear this morning. So as we look at the text, we'll see three points as we just follow the structure of the text as it's presented. The first thing we'll consider together is what is the problem? What's the problem that God's people are facing? The second thing that we'll consider together is what is the priority? As they try to fix the problem, what do they prioritize? And then third and finally, we'll consider together the process by which they fix the problem. So first, let's look at the problem. The problem we see here in verse 15 through 19 comes to us very clear in a very graphic way. It is the problem of Judas. In fact, it's a problem that the early church faces and that we oftentimes face as well. The problem of Judas. What do we do about Judas? Well, our context, I started in the beginning of verse 12. We see that God's people are waiting patiently just as Jesus told them. Remember, just before his ascension in chapter 1, Jesus instructed his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And God's people did precisely what Jesus told them to do. Now, here they are in the upper room, praying to God. There's a, from when, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father to when people were waiting, his people were waiting for the Holy Spirit, a time of about 10 days that they're waiting And who's in the room? We know that the apostles, those early witnesses who were with Jesus during his ministry, who saw him visibly, his resurrected, um, his resurrection. We know that women um, were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, were among them. As you read throughout Acts, what we will see is that women play a significant role in the body of Christ, in the building of the church. And one of the things I love, and I've just been reminded this week at Parkview, is I've seen women serving all over the place here. And I'm reminded of how how influential and significant women are in the role of extending God's kingdom across this earth to the ends of the earth. Women were in the room. His brothers, his siblings were also in their midst. But we see here in this setting that there is a problem. Someone among them is not there. There is an apostolic vacancy. Somebody's missing. The first problem that the church faces following the ascension of Jesus is what do they do about Jesus, or sorry, what do they do about Judas? Apologies. It should not be lost on us that it is Peter among them who stands up. Peter who stands up and who addresses the congregation and points out this problem that needs to be fixed. Now, if you remember, and this is Acts, the first volume of Acts is Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, the last words that are recorded by Luke up until this point are actually those of, by Peter, are those of Peter's denial. Him saying three times, I don't know that man. And the next time, as Luke writes, that Peter opens his mouth, this is what he says. This should not be lost on us. This is powerful. Peter goes from somebody who was denying Jesus to now somebody who stands up and who declares Jesus. A remarkable transformation. What happened to take him from denial to declaration? Well, if you just read back, you'll see that specifically in Luke's gospel, he peers into an empty tomb. Peter discovers and comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's one thing that happens. In John's gospel, we learn also that, that Jesus will come to Peter and restore him, restore him in, in ministry. 
Well, we also know that in Luke 24, following the resurrection, that Jesus spoke these words to Peter. He says, these are my words that I speak to you. He says these to the, the, all of the disciples, the 11 who remain. I speak to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When Jesus, the resurrected Christ, spends time with the disciples, an important message we learn in Acts is that he speaks the kingdom of God. In Luke 24, he says that the words of the prophets must must be fulfilled. Jesus opened up the scriptures and taught himself through the Old Testament to his disciples. And the picture we have here this morning is Peter, a man who has totally dropped the ball, completely failed Jesus, standing among the people with this displaying, really showcasing this wonderful gift of biblical interpretation. Peter is a new man. Now, Luke provides for us in verses 18 and 19 a descriptive and historical account of what happened to Judas. It's both vivid and it's also horrifying. He tells us that Judas used the money he gained from handing over Jesus some 30 pieces of silver to buy a field, a field in which he fell headlong and burst open. This is a dramatic description of Judas's death. And while it's hard to read, it's necessary for us to consider. It is here for a reason. And what I think it's at least a couple of reasons why I think it's so graphic is because it reminds us of the very real consequences of rejecting Jesus. That rejecting Jesus does not go well for you. Doesn't go well for you. This is a graphic, a graphic way of reminding us of that fact. It also provides for us an opportunity to examine our own lives. I think especially if you're somebody here and you would identify as a follower of Jesus, somebody who has received the gift of salvation, and you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, if you are maybe a member of this church and you've been following Jesus for some time, this text is here as a, as a helpful reminder. It, it, it provides for us an opportunity to examine our own lives. See, the reality, the problem of Judas is actually a terrifying problem. Here is this man who was one of the 12 who had followed Jesus, who sat at his feet for some three years, who served in his ministry, who listened to his teaching, Here's a man who saw Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle. Saw him heal the sick, give sight to the blind, make a lame man walk, bring the dead back to life. That's what Judas got to see. And yet, at the end of the day, Judas, listen up, preferred, see if this sounds familiar, preferred pleasures of money over the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, Judas gave up the eternal riches of God's kingdom for 30 pieces of silver. Now, here's the deal, folks. That temptation is one that you and I face every single day. It is a very real 
threat, one that we are tempted with. And we are reminded as we consider Judas's fate, the horrifying consequences of choosing the pleasures of money over the kingdom of God. It's a chance for us to stop and just say, whoa, wait a second. Am I doing that? It's a serious temptation for all of us, especially in today's culture. The reality of Judas's apostasy presented, presented a significant problem for the disciples. Look what's possible. Is Christ unable to keep us, as he said? Is this movement the real deal? Will this problem stop Christ from continuing his purposes to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth? There's probably some that are in their midst asking that very question. Now, it's interesting. Maybe a homework assignment would be, here's two characters in the first couple of verses who come leaping off of the pages, Peter and Judas, and they share something in common. They both totally dropped the ball. One denied Jesus. The other one rejected him, sold him away. But yet, they also had two dramatically different fates. Here's a homework assignment. Spend the next week asking, what's the difference? What's the difference between Peter and Judas? Think about that for a while. Moving on. That's the problem. Now, the priority. I'm not going to answer that question for you. Spend some time thinking about it. The priority. As they try to fix this problem, what is the priority for them? Well, simply put, it's this. Can I get a witness? That's the priority. In verses 20 through 22, we see them set themselves towards fixing this problem. Peter takes leadership to address the problem of Judas, and as we've already seen, he points to Scripture. Scripture had to be fulfilled. He points to two different places in the book of Psalms. And if you look down at your Bible, you'll see in verse 20 these different Psalms. The first is Psalm 69, 25. He quotes this Psalm ultimately to show that God's judgment was fulfilled in what happened to Judas and his property. Psalm 69, 25 prophesied the inevitable outcome of Judas. That's how Peter interpreted it. Remember, Peter has a fantastic teacher when it comes to biblical interpretation. Peter's using, what he's doing here is he's using the Bible to make sense of what has happened. As he considers his circumstances, as he takes survey of his present moment, Peter looks through the lens of Scripture to understand how to best sort of make sense of life. And folks, the application is obvious for us. We ought to do the exact same thing. We, as God's people, ought to interpret and examine and consider the events, the times, the problems that we face by looking and starting with Scripture. Now, if you think just real quick in the last couple of weeks, what we've been trying to do at church is there's been a few things that we have been trying to encourage you to do just this. Uh, right now in the atrium, there's a class called Culture Clash. Just an opportunity for many people to come through and consider different maybe uh, threats or opportunities, things in our world right now that we face as followers of Jesus. And we're trying to take scripture and say, how do we answer these questions? How do we think about 
gender and sexuality? How do, we, how do we think about politics? How do we respond to social media? We open the Bible and we look at God's word. We start there. We, we, you know, the reading plan. It's hard to do that if you don't know God's word. And so we put out a reading plan trying to unite the church on reading through the Bible. It's one way to just become biblically literate so that we can actually do this. A lot of different ways that we're trying to encourage us to be people who are people of the book as we consider how to live and navigate in the world around us. Now, the second passage that Peter references is Psalm 109.8. Peter uses it as, he, as grounds for replacing Judas with another. Consider the problem of Judas. Yes, it was prophesied in scriptures, but what do we do about it? What's our next move? If you look down at verse 20, it says, let another take his office. So what Peter is doing here is he's using the Bible not simply to make sense of the world around them and their current events. He's also using Scripture to decide what to do next. And again, it's a great reminder and a great example for us as people of this word, of this book, as we face in our lives undoubtedly one decision after another. How do we make those decisions? How do we know what to do next? Well, we follow Peter's example. We open up the Bible and we consider his word. What does God, how does God direct us? Now, here's the deal, that Judas's apostasy was part of God's plan, and this is ultimately what Peter shows. What he's showing is that Judas's apostasy, his, his rejection and betrayal of Jesus was a part of God's plan. That's what Peter's, that's the case he's making. And shows us that God is at work. And this is why it brings us so much comfort. That while the disciples may be considering, maybe we are too this morning, is this is a terrible thing. How terrifying, the reality of Judas. This is a significant problem. It should bring comfort to us this morning to know that even in the darkest times, we can have confidence that God is still at work. Another way to say it is no matter what happens around us, God and his purposes are simply unstoppable. Even the worst of betrayal cannot slow him down. Should bring comfort to us this morning. Now it's at this point that it's clear that Peter is thinking. He's thinking that Judas needs to be replaced. The apostolic seat that he left vacant must be filled. Why must it be filled? It would be a question that as I studied it, I asked, why does it have to be filled? Why is this sort of the first thing that they do before as they're waiting? Ten days, they've got ten days before the Spirit, and they're praying, they're together, and Peter says we have to fix this problem. Why? Well, first is because, we've already learned, Scripture has to be fulfilled. Another reason why they would do this could be that Peter recognized the parallel that Jesus had made between the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. We see this in the book of Luke and also in Revelation. Just as there had been 12 sons of Jacob as the foundation of Israel, so there would be 12 apostles as the foundation of the church. That could be another reason why this had to be corrected. More specifically, as they considered fixing this problem, what they prioritized was that the person that was chosen to take this place would be a witness. Look down at verse 22. As they consider the criteria in verse 22, it says, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of us, these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. This is the criteria 
in my Bible, I just underline the word witness because it's a really important word in the text. It's also a really important word as we read throughout the book of Acts. It's one that we've already seen in chapter 1, the word witness. This is the criteria that they established that whoever this man is, whoever takes Judas' spot, must be a witness. That is that this apostle must be one who was present during Jesus' ministry and who was a witness who saw the resurrection. The resurrection is recognized, this is important, because the resurrection is recognized as his divine vindication of both his person and his work. It's the ultimate testimony that Jesus was precisely who he said he was. And we want somebody to sit around this table who can bear witness to that fact. Why? Because as they go about to the ends of the earth proclaiming, do you know what they're proclaiming? Ultimately, they're proclaiming the resurrection. We see in chapter 4, verse 33, as they go out and proclaim this message, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. They were bearing witness to the reality of the resurrection because they understood that if this really happened, it changes everything. It changes everything in the world around us. It changes everything personally for us. If the resurrection is a reality, we have, we have a decision to make. And so they needed somebody who could testify to that. Jesus, throughout the book of Acts, calls them witnesses. Over and over again, 232, 3.15, 10.39, 22.15, these are witnesses. What God is doing is he's extending his kingdom through his spirit-filled people as they bear witness to the Son to the ends of the earth. This is his plan. This is what he's up to. As we think of Maria Fearing, this is precisely what he used her to do, to bear witness to God's ability to give new life. And guess what? It's exactly what you and I have been called to do as well. If we have had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, remember he continues his ministry seated on the throne at the right hand of God. And if we have been transformed by the power of the gospel, God has now placed on our life a calling to bear witness to that transformation, to bear witness to the power of the resurrection and the new life that we have. It's who we are. As awesome as the story as it is of Maria Farian, as I love it, here's the deal. Many of us may think that we have to cross cultural barriers, or maybe that's, that's something for missionaries to do, but the reality is the difference between, there's really no difference between somebody like Maria Farian, who is crossing land and sea, cultural barriers, to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those who sit in the comfort of their home, own home. The only difference between those two things, it's, it's a difference of geography, not a difference of identity. Your identity as a blood-bought follower of Jesus, your identity, this is bound up in who you are, to bear witness to who Jesus is, his work, his life. Now, moving on, third point, the process. So they need a witness to fill the vacancy of Judas. As they seek to fill this vacancy... They do a couple of things, and we see these specifically in verses 23 through 26. First, they put forward two men, two men who, remember, fit the criteria, two men who, who were witnesses, apostolic witnesses, firsthand witnesses of Jesus. And there are also, it says in verse 24, men who, as they were setting this, this process in motion, they believed 
that this was, just like the initial apostles, this would be somebody who would be appointed by Jesus. Look at verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place. They understand that the criteria is somebody who bears witness to Jesus, but is also chosen by Jesus. So they put forward two men, Justice and Matthias, and then they prayed. See it in verse 24. Though Jesus was gone from their presence, they believed that he was still accessible to them, that he was still working in their midst, that he was still guiding and directing them. So they cry out to him for help. And finally, we're told that they drew lots. Now, this would have been a common way if you've read through the Bible much or if much familiarity with the Old Testament. You will see this, this practice of drawing lots is very common in the Old Testament. It's the only time that we see it in the New Testament by God's people. It's the only time in the New Testament we see God's people drawing lots. And so after the Holy Spirit comes, there's no need to draw lots. But at this time, it's a perfectly acceptable means by which they can decide who do they've got two guys they meet the criteria we know that god ultimately has chosen it let's let him do his thing let's draw lots well what's drawing lots simply this it's taking they probably would have taken stones or maybe some sticks they would have etched a name or a symbol one to represent justice another to represent matthias they would have taken those stones or sticks likely there's a couple of different ways to do it but likely threw it in a sack shook it up mixed it around and then either dumped it out or reached in and pulled one out that's what casting lots was. And whichever one came out, in this case, Matthias, he's the winner. He's the apostle. Now, we may look at it and think, oh, this is totally random. What business that God's people have doing casting lots? Remember, they believe that God's hand is intimately involved. He is directing. Jesus is Christ. This is a main point in the book of Acts. Jesus is continuing his ministry, not while he's on earth, but enthroned in heaven. He's continuing his ministry on earth. And as they cast lots, they believe that he is doing precisely that. Now today, as we make critical decisions, we, we don't cast lots. We do things like the, you know, form a search committee, right? Identify criteria, conduct some interviews, have godly men and women pray and consider and discern that God will direct and will lead and that his will will be done. It's sort of a different mechanism, but the process is the same. The process is the same. Folks, this morning, this passage, as I studied it, has brought me tremendous comfort. I hope that it will for you too. The risen Lord Jesus will not be frustrated even by our rebellion. In our day and age, it is so sad that we see one spiritual leader, it seems like, after another fall. And we think, if you're like me, what in the world is going on? Then we think, maybe, does God know what he's doing? How can that be a good witness to the world around us? Take heart, brother and sister. Even our rebellion, even our rejection of God, it will not stop him. Neither will things like sickness, financial hardship, 
significant virus, racial strife and division, political strife and division, just keep going on and on. Heartache, divorce. These things are real things. Many of them come with pain. Many of them are very, very difficult. I am not minimizing that. But if you can relate to any of those this morning, take heart. God's purpose in your life will not be stopped. It won't happen. Our responsibility, what I love about this text is it showcases God's divine sovereignty. At the same time, it showcases human responsibility. What do we do? We follow these dear brothers and sisters. We link arms, bow our heads, cry out to God for help, and we take one step of faithful obedience after another. And then we just see what God does. This morning, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. First, I'm so glad that you're here. Thrilled that you're here. Welcome here anytime. My question to you is simply this. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? This God is unstoppable. And when he sets his sights on you, when he directs his love towards you, nothing can stop him. Not even death. Not even death. Paul tells us as much in Romans 8. There is no greater thing that you can do in the next three minutes than turn from your sin, confess it to the Lord, who is faithful and just to forgive, and with the open hands of faith, receive, receive the gift of salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. That's the best use of your time in the next two minutes. What are you waiting for? If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer, the question to you is not any different. What are you waiting for? What's holding you back? Many decisions? Maybe paralyzing you right now? Difficulty, uncertainty, whatever it might be. God's purposes in your life can not be stopped. Let's link arms. Let's depend on him in prayer. Let's do it together. And let's see what God does. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful reminder that we serve not just a unstoppable God, but the unstoppable God. And Lord, I pray that as we join you in your great purpose to extend your kingdom to the ends of the earth, Lord, I pray that you would help us remember that if we do that, we too are unstoppable. We love you. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.